Welcome to JobsCast. As I record this opening monologue on a sunny Monday fall afternoon, I just learned that a second COVID-19 vaccine from Cambridge, Massachusetts-based company Moderna is looking extremely promising, and that between Moderna and the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine, it's possible that in the U.S. by the end of the year, healthcare workers and people over the age of 65 can get vaccinated. Very good news, which here at JobsCast, that's mostly what you're going to get. This is intended to be a feel-good show, rated PG-13 for occasional use of curse words, and I'll note that it's not feel-good as a function of my nature. I tend to skew critical and anxious rather than accepting and carefree, but when I look at the people around me spending countless hours doom-scrolling, it leads me to conclude that if I'm going to try to create, I have to make something that is not only true, but also good and inspiring and hope-spreading. Now, one might contend that the ultimate truth is the ultimate good, which may be true, but if truth is a matter of total understanding, your life might get hyperlinked away before you're able to act on anything you've learned. I guess that's an oblique way of stating that I want to help people feel a little more okay however I can now, while recognizing and honoring that others need to follow their dispositions, perhaps more radical than mine, to address the more upstream systemic and structural problems that cause the symptoms that I'm trying to treat in the near term. But going back to the news, you should still follow it. I disagree with folks who encourage taking a media break because it induces too much anxiety. I don't think all or nothing is ever a good binary or even a realistic one. It's obviously important to be aware of the news in the sense of learning about what's new, but it's got to be done in a limited and disciplined manner. And you need a diverse diet because major news organizations promulgate the problems of the world and it shouldn't be news that the news is negative. The news has always mostly told the parts of the story of reality that have to do with deviations from healthy functionality. That's why hearing regular people, which, let me say, I'm not even sure that phrase really makes sense, as I think the most exceptional people who've ever lived actually have more in common with us than not, so in that light, we all share significantly in regularness. But anyway, in the news, we don't often hear, for example, about regular people finding purpose and stimulation and satisfaction at work because that's the assumed backdrop against which everything else is unfolding. What's alarming is I think a terrible inversion has occurred in recent years as screens have increasingly come to mediate our understanding of the world. Now it seems that bad news that travels in our pockets or is in our hands all day is taken to be the new normal, and it makes sense that more news and more exposure to it equates to a greater availability bias, which engenders a more widespread doomsday outlook. It's a view that the world is fatally cracked, and it's only a matter of time before everything crumbles and falls into the abyss. I'm certainly not here to deny the gravity of the obstacles with regard to racial injustice, police brutality, wealth inequality, opioid addiction, depression, loneliness, joblessness, entropy, climate change. If you quickly run out of breath even just trying to list all the colossal problems facing humanity. But my view is, yes, the world is indeed cracked, and again, I applaud those who apply themselves to fixing our biggest problems. However, cracks, as Leonard Cohen put it, are where the light gets in. Put another way, we can feel fear and hope simultaneously. After all, we live our lives knowing we're approaching death. We're born with that crack in our hope, and yet it's hope that endures and sometimes even wins out. Let me try to give you a concrete example of some of what I'm talking about from my own life. I've mentioned that on the podcast that I recently moved back to Pennsylvania, close to where I grew up, and in my new old neighborhood, I've been surrounded by lawns with Trump signs. I am pro-America, anti-Trump, and pro-someone's ability to support any candidate I abhor, including Donald Trump. 
To sustain that civic philosophy, I have to try to not read too much into the Trump signs. I have to not let seeing them send my mind cascading into all sorts of negative thinking about who my neighbors are and what they stand for. It's not easy, but something happened that underscored how complex people are and how stupid I was to be surprised at that. My partner and I were about to drive over to my parents' house and our car wouldn't start. One of our neighbors, who had a Trump sign in his lawn, came over, we'll call this neighbor Bill, and asked us if we needed help. Bill took a good half hour out of his Friday night to try to fix our car, and although we couldn't get it running, he even helped push the car out of our garage into a space that would be more accessible for a tow. I haven't talked politics at all yet with Bill. Perhaps he's always been a Republican, and so his support can be chalked up to loyalty to his party. And I'm not saying that loyalty is a good excuse or even particularly good in general, as I think it often mistakenly leads people to avoid making difficult and important changes in their lives. But I'm simply pointing out here that... Like most people, I suspect Bill's behavior is nudged by different ethical obligations. On the one hand, he may have an ethic of loyalty, and on the other, an ethic of neighborliness. On the one hand, he may harbor some fear about people like me, people with Biden signs in their yard, and on the other, he might feel hope in the always renewable energy of being kind and of service to others. So the takeaway here isn't to not despair or to tune out the bad news. It's to see that hope always coexists with despair and wickedness, and you can more easily access the feeling behind that truth if you can avoid flattening your understanding of others. The world is troubled, but for the most part, people, though complicated, are good. And I actually think that there's a causal flow there that complicating our view of others helps remind us and deepen our awareness of the fact that people are mostly good. Today's podcast guest, Sam Sparks, is a case in point. Sam's a plumber. I was very eager to have a plumber on because it's a vital job most people can't do themselves, and yet it has a spot on the societal totem pole that's relatively low. We automatically hold plumbers in much lower regard than, say, doctors, lawyers, and engineers, maybe because of stereotypes of an overweight man with his butt crack out, maybe because we associate the position with what it remedies, or maybe because it's not a job that requires a college degree, maybe all of these reasons, I don't know, but... Whatever the reason, I want to challenge your thinking about what a given plumber might have to say about his job and his position in the world by sharing with you the rangy and passionate thinking of Sam Sparks. In our conversation, Sam and I address how COVID-19 has affected his business, the roles of creativity and decisiveness in the plumbing industry, American individualism and American ingenuity, the general importance of good decision-making and self-awareness, stereotypes, the master plumber test, what it's like working in a family business, and insights about others' lives based on spending time with them in their homes. If you want to get in touch, the best way these days is through Twitter. You can follow and DM JobsCast Podcast, and I'd be happy to hear from you. I now present to you my conversation with Sam Sparks. Sam, welcome to JobsCast. Well, thanks for having me. What were you working on just prior to this call? Well, this morning I put out a fire, had a customer that was on our list for a while. They weren't happy about it. It ended up being something that uh, was a little bit more than what I'd expected. I had a double vanity that had plumbing that was coming through the floor and it needed to be put into the wall and then the vanity set. And uh, so basically I rerouted the plumbing into the wall and then set the vanity into place and put on her new faucets, hooked up the drains underneath, and got her going. She was really happy that the job got done. It's been a very busy year. 
the pandemic, it almost acted like a uh, throttle pedal. At first, I was very concerned that people weren't going to want to spend any money because they weren't sure of their jobs. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? But that didn't that didn't seem to be the case. So with that job that you just described from soup to nuts, how many hours did it take you in total? As I hear you describing that, I'm thinking to myself, as someone who completely lacks your skill set and expertise, that would take me I mean, I wouldn't be able to do it, but if I attempted to do it, it would take me forever. I would watch a million YouTube videos, and then I would do a bad job because I'm not an expert. But you're a professional. You've been in this business of plumbing for a long time. So for someone with your expertise, how long did that specific job you were just describing take you today? It took me three hours. That's phenomenal, basically. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't have any hang-ups. I saw what I needed to do. I didn't hesitate. And... I went right after it. And that's what you have to do or learn how to do. That's the thing is my recognition skills and my ability to diagnose the job is, you know, 24 years worth of experience, you know. Mm. So when the customer calls me, I show up a lot of the money that they're paying me for that hour service call that I got done in a half an hour is experience. It took a long time to be able to diagnose like I am able to and fix the things that I'm able to fix and the time that I'm able to do it. And people don't know what goes into that. It takes years to learn how to do that. You mentioned in our preliminary call your hourly rate, which is pretty high, but I think people also need to understand, and it sounds like they do since you've been busy, that what you can do in three hours, you know, someone working at half your rate, may take them eight to 10 hours, if not more. So the job will be lower quality and higher price in the end. Well, peace of mind, that's valuable. And having somebody that you trust, which is hard to find in a rural community, it's a little bit easier because the word of mouth gets out a little bit faster than a big city. But still, when you know somebody and you trust somebody and they say, oh, this guy's great, and you try him and you like him, even in the city, the name gets out, the word gets out, and you get business from that. You get a guarantee for a year on the product that I put in, and you get the peace of mind that my reputation is I am good for that warranty. I'll take care of you, you know what I mean? And I'll, I'll work real hard to keep you happy. And I like, I like that part of the customer service because you build relationships with people, and you want that trust factor there. Yeah, I, I think sometimes... When you take stock of reality in 2020, it feels like we're living in a techno-utopia as far as the convenience goes and the gadgets. But I think at the end of the day, that word of mouth advertising is still so powerful for small businesses. I also run a small business and recommendations have been the number one driver of customers for me. Has to be. Yeah, it yeah. has to be. And, yeah. and that And that comes from work ethic. And it's so important to have it and it's hard to teach it and it's hard to just have it too, but it's something that you can develop for sure. It goes a long way for small business because small businesses are constantly battling to keep up with the tax rates, keep up with the overhead and costs. And there's very little that the federal government ever does for small business. It's far easier to stimulate and control corporate America, whereas small business America, there's a lot of cash that's involved in there, and they don't like that, can't track that. It's a battle. You literally have to battle to be a small business (laughs) in America, and and it's sad because they should be 
who the federal government fights for the most. And yeah. it just doesn't seem like it that either party does that. And it's sad. So. Yeah. I would add to that critique as well that the incentive goes down for lifelong politicians to make better circumstances for small businesses because when they get out of politics, they don't usually go into small business. They go into big business themselves, right? As consultants, it's what sociologists refer to as the revolving door, where incredibly well-funded large corporations will pay for political campaigns and those politicians will get back into those industries making 300, 400K after their politicians. I'm not saying that it's that way across the board, but we yeah. certainly know that that occurs, right? No, it, it doesn't surprise anybody. And it's part of the benefits of public service. You know what I mean? It is the contacts that you make. I don't play golf just to play golf. You know what I mean? I meet <laughs> there on the golf course. I've made a lot of business deals from that. It occurs to me that sometimes the line between what we might call networking, because I agree with you, right? You build up a network and if it's a healthy network, and I don't like the term networking, I've always just found it a little bit too extractive. The best kind of network is one that's built on good, straightforward service and trust yeah, and yeah, ultimately exactly. friendship too, right? If you, if you yep, just get to I, know I, someone. I so I feel like using the word sort of like sets you up for failure. I think I said <laughs> exactly. on a recent podcast, I had a guy come up to me one time and he said, hey, let's network. And I thought it was so off-putting. It was so strange. I was like, man, like, I think the first step is get a beer, like get to know each other, you know, rather than like jump right into the extracting mutual benefit part. But anyway, I, I do think it's a really interesting and kind of tricky question, defining that boundary between what we might say would be the fruits of networking versus something that is a bit ne- more nefarious. Exactly. And we all have our own boundaries that we set for our morals. Totally. I'm a little bit looser than the next guy. You know what I mean? I've seen a lot. And other people are a little bit tighter on what they expect out of their politician and out of their sure. corporate America. And that's their right. That's the beauty of America, the freedom of being able to have your own opinion and being able to talk about it. Being a little bit more tolerant for other people's boundaries and morals. And that would help out a lot with getting somewhere that we all could have the same opinions, at least on what we should do with politicians and their networking, <laughs> for lack of a yeah, better term. Yeah. You know what I mean? It feels like, you know, we, we hear a lot about the narrative of political polarization and divisiveness these days stemming from the, the national level. But I think the way that people at the local level and communities have internalized this, from my observation, and I live in Pennsylvania now, which is a Uh, very much a purple state. I think that the level of animosity towards someone who has different political views is just so out of proportion. At the end of the day, it feels trite almost to say like, we're all Americans. And I agree with what you're saying. Among the things that are defining about America are our ability to have a a wide net and uh, be in a place where we could say it takes all kinds to make a world. And that's just not talking about black, white, skin color, that has to include ideas and perspectives, well, yeah. right? And and those kinds of abstract aspects of diversity. I agree totally. I'm so much into individualism, and that's why the trades fit me so well, because I'm able to come up with my own system that I have, that I enjoy showing other apprentices, this is how I do it, and this is why I do it this way, and teaching them my creativity is basically what I do. So being an individual, I can walk into a place and see that somebody that I trained a long time ago is still using my system or my technique. And it makes me feel proud. 
that not only did I learn how to do this stuff on my own, coming from a troubled teenager to somebody that's helped put food on the table for families with my knowledge, that means a lot to me. I've got a lot of buddies that I brought up to to work for me, and now they have their own homes and families, and they're supporting them and not having to worry about their bills, even in down economic times. We still have a lot of work to do, so it, it's important to have individualism and be creative in your job, and that's why the trades fit me. So that's actually a good point for us to maybe zoom out, paint a picture for the listener, Sam. You you mentioned earlier you're in a somewhat rural area of Colorado, and I know that in January you're going to be taking over the plumbing business that was started by your father. So walk us through the geography of where you are and where your business is taking place. And you mentioned troubled teenage years. So what were the early years like for you getting into this business? My name is Sam Sparks. I'm a master plumber. I work for Sparks Plumbing and Heating. I'm a fourth generation plumber. This is all I've ever done. Obviously, when I was in school, I had big plans of being an astronaut or a microbiologist or something that anybody that would aspire to be. But my focus level was terrible. I couldn't sit still. I just couldn't focus for long enough to sit through a day of school. School is incredibly boring, and there are so many smart people who can't do school for that reason, among others. Well, self-awareness is so important. It's something that people don't teach. You can't teach it. Well, you can teach it, but it's so important because it helps you in so many ways to know your strengths, to know your weaknesses, to know what interests you and being honest with yourself and looking yourself in the mirror. It took me a while, but uh, after a while, I was like, man, school's not for me. I need to pay attention to what I'm doing in the summertime. And I buckled down a few summers working with my dad and, you know, by the time I got out of high school, I'd made $60,000, $70,000. I didn't know anybody a dime. I wasn't worried about my student loan or if I could get one. I wasn't worried about where I was going to go to school. I left high school and I hit the pavement running. I was thankful for it because a lot of my friends got out of school and they didn't know what to do. They went in there with great intentions, but they didn't have a plan to put it together. I was 24. I had a new kid. And that changed my life. When my first little one came, it was important for me to get good at my trade. And I took it real serious the next couple of years after that, got licensed, and I've never looked back. My company now, I mean, we're going to probably gross four to four and a half million dollars this year. And congratulations is maybe 15,000 people. And then we have rural area, you know, that has another 10, but there's not a lot of competition out here. They don't have much of a choice because people don't get into this trade. It's tough. It's tough work. And that's where that self-awareness thing comes. We want top talent, but we don't get top talent. Mm-hmm. Who gets showing up at our door or like we, I was saying earlier, like land pirates, you know what I mean? <laughs> and I got to clean them up. I got to get them smart. I got to get them tough. I got to get them well-mannered. And like I said, the talent that I'm pulling from is 
is minimal because of the stereotype that plumbing carries with it. It's difficult to find the top talent that you desperately need. I mean, this stuff is technical. We're talking boiler schematics. We're talking complex blueprints for buildings, commercial buildings and residential buildings. I mean, I'm going up and plumbing these homes in Telluride. These things are bananas, dude. I mean, some of the stuff that we're doing... The only way that I could describe it to your audience would be to take a picture. You, right, know what you I can't mean? even put it into words. It's that not technical, yeah. Not layman's term, you know what I mean? And like I said, I'm dealing with land pirates. So I, I have to be picky. I have to be choosy. I really have to look at these guys. And it takes years to build a good team. But now I got a team that's amazing. And it's taken, like I said, it's taken a long time of training young men and going through the bumps. And the liability is insane in plumbing. I mean, if I have a gas leak and that thing causes an explosion, the lawyers would tear me apart. And that's and assuming that's assuming your body isn't torn apart by the accident, right? Exactly. If I wasn't there during the accident myself. So the liability is insane. So I have to navigate all of these things, like I said, as a small businessman, while the government's trying to take me down too you know what i mean it's a lot man it's intense it's not for everybody and then you gotta talk about all of the taxes that are involved workman's comp and everything that goes into that plus keeping your vehicles maintained i have to keep a secretary that's what makes me successful is the other plumbers don't have somebody that's there to answer the phone every day i do that made a huge difference for me all of those things go into what i charge an hour Sam, I know uh, it sounds like with your job, I'm guessing that if I asked you about a typical day, you would say no two days are the same, which makes sense. But maybe a doctor would tell me like, you know, the most common things that a primary care provider would see would be like, I don't know, sore throat, runny nose, common cold. What's like the common cold equivalent to a plumber? What's the most common job you do? And then two part question. So most common job. And then what are some jobs that come to your mind over the course of the past many years that you've been in the industry that were just like, you were like, oh my God, this is the most insane problem. How am I going to go about this? You know, really unusual, abnormal problems. Mm. Well, obviously plug drains. That's where the stereotype and why being a plumber is not for everyone is because we do have to unclog drains. Now, when getting into plumbing, there's different companies that do different things. Now, being that we're a real company, we do everything. We can't be picky in the jobs that we take and don't take. We have to do it all. So we do service plumbing as well as new construction. But if drain cleaning isn't up your alley, that doesn't mean that plumbing's not up your alley. Just don't become a service plumber. The service side of our company, the most common job is drain cleaning. And then the other side of our job is new construction, which is what I do the most of. And that's installation of new plumbing, whether it be rough plumbing or trim. So those are the two most common sides of our trade would be installation and then drain cleaning. And then on the other side, what was the most insane job? Well, one time our local pizza hut called us with a plug drain and we sent our heavy duty big snake up the clean out that was inside of the building at the very back of the building. And it went up and got stuck up inside of the drain. And that was because the cast iron had rotted out underneath the bottom of it from the soda machine running down that drain had rotted the bottom of it out. 
And essentially the snake had gone out that hole, wrapped itself around that pipe and tied itself into a knot. And oh, wow. we didn't know that at the time. So we got another pipe with a piece of angle iron on it and put a come along on it and put that snake on that come along <laughs> and tighten that thing and tighten that thing and tighten that thing. <laughs> and that sucker snapped. And I mean, that snake come whipping back down through oh. that hole. It would have taken your hand or foot or face clean off if it had hit you. It must have been going a thousand miles an hour up into the pipe. Oh my gosh. So we looked at the guy and we said, you're done. You can't <laughs> have to close down because your sewer is not going to work until we cut and trench all the way to the front of this building, a new line, get this snake out and replace this pipe. So we had a concrete company come in with a saw and they cut two cuts down the middle of this building from one to a wall and they'd get it right up to the wall and then they'd jump to the other side and continue that trench on until we got to where the snake had broke off. And then they jackhammered it up, brought it out, and then we got to digging and that was really difficult. We, the, Where we uh, had the clean out was seven foot deep in that hole and then it got gradually it went up and then it jumped up real high and then went through the building and then we found where the snake had broke off and where the soda machine had come in and rotted that pipe out so we ran a new plastic pvc line over to the soda machine and ran all new plastic back to the clean out which was plastic there too and fixed it but it took two days of working almost 15 hours both days to try to get them back open because it was an insane amount of money. It was like $80,000 a day that they were making at that time. And they did not want to be shut down. They were like, you got to be kidding us, but they couldn't be open. There was just no trains. Their whole restaurant was backed up. So they had to do it. That wow. was probably the most insane job that I had to do. As Great far pizza as hut story. Yeah. Pizza <laughs> hut. And you know, those, that poor concrete crew that saw was, gas and they had some pipe that they'd had run out with the exhaust but it developed it got so hot that it poked some holes in there and some of them had gotten sick from that exhaust and had to go sit out on the concrete and boy it just it was a it was a real mess but you know most days aren't like that that's very rare that's only once in a while for us where it gets that extreme but on the other end you know i've done homes where every step that you stepped on it lit up with like these led lights as you went up this stairwell and as you looked <laughs> out onto the san juan mountains you could see this lake that's called trout lake and it is just the most gorgeous lake you ever saw in your life and as you go up this stairwell this whole wall is just glass and it looks down onto this lake and then this fourteen thousand foot peak that's just covered in snow it's just gorgeous one of the most amazing things I ever saw. All the wood that they brought in from that, they brought in from barns that were in Europe. And these planks were 40 feet long, solid pieces of wood. And they were also two foot wide. And that's what they made this floor out of. And it was just incredible. The money that comes up to that place, I'll tell you, right, it's just insane. Some of these jobs that you get to work on are just it, it blows your mind. It really does. The carpentry, the construction, the toys, all the things that they put in it to make it really fancy and nice. Ski ride in. <laughs> Just amazing. Yeah. So, Sam, tell me about what you've learned about people 
from your job. You told me the anecdote about, I think, a woman in a nicely kept trailer, if you remember when we spoke about a week ago. Your line of work, like many other lines of work, you get exposed to people regularly. You're in these small talking scenarios. I know some people are chatty and maybe small talk becomes medium talk or even deep talk. But what would you say some of your observations and some of your learnings are about people and how they organize their lives? Well, we get to meet so many different people. And being that I had ADHD as a child and had a hard time focusing, getting to meet new people and getting to do different jobs every day and getting to have that interaction with my community really stimulates my brain. I get a lot out of that. I get a lot out of helping people who need help. I don't mind fudging my bill a little bit to help them when I know it would be really helpful. You know what I mean? Yeah. And not because I have to, but because I get to, because I am blessed as far as the amount of work that I get and the customers that I get. So I'm able to do stuff like that. I keep water heaters that people replace that didn't need to replace it. They just wanted to upgrade for a different reason or something. I keep that water heater for people who have their water heater go out that could use one and don't have the money to buy a new one. So there's a lot of ways that I get to interact with the community. The one thing that I really like about being in the service is I get to meet the older folks in this community. And they don't get a lot of uh, company. So when I come over, they're really chit-chatty, like you said. And let me tell you, those are some of the sweetest, best people. And you don't think about them enough until you start thinking about what you're doing there and what and why they're interacting with you the way they are. So I really like to pick their brain about their day-to-day and kind of dig back into their past, too. And it really, you see them light up when they talk about things that interest them or the things that used to interest them, or just anything. That human connection is so important. And that's what's so frustrating about this pandemic. There's so many victims of it, not Mm. just the virus victims. There's so many victims of loneliness. It was a problem before with old people. Now it's really a problem. And I just want people to know how important. I mean, yeah, talking on the phone or Skyping is great. But, man, I can't tell you how important it is to talk to people and to interact. We're social beings, and that's what's so frustrating about the COVID-19 is it's just trying to separate us down to little groups. And it's so important for seniors to have some interaction with their family and their friends. It's frustrating for me. Sorry yeah. about that. No, no, I, I share your well said, and I share that sentiment. I feel like when I think about the stressors of the pandemic outside of the immediate health consequences for those people who have contracted the virus. I always feel a little awkward using the term silver lining. The phrase sort of weirds me out in general because I feel like a situation this bad, I mean, it's just bad. I guess like it could it could be an opportunity for perspective taking and that could be good. My father had a, had a good phrase. He said, instead of silver lining, we'll call it copper plating. We'll lower it down a notch. Do you think one you know bit of uh, copper plating per se about this is that when it ends, and when is is the big question, right? We don't know when. Yeah. We're not saying if, which is the good thing. It is a when question, not an if question. We know we can get there. It's just a matter of when. I think, Sam, when it ends, I mean, what you're talking about, the physical contacts, the physical proximity, having friends over to your house and family without having to worry about it, 
everything from that to shaking a stranger's hand to, you know, the thing you want to do the most too, for me anyway, when you see people you love is hug them. And I think to be dealing with it, you know, dealing with a time that is, as you were saying, so tough and stressful. The number one thing you want to do during tough, stressful times is hug your loved ones. And that's the one thing that we're not supposed to do now. So it's a diabolical virus. It's just been awful. But anyway, the copper plating, I think, is I really hope if there is a return to previous levels of normal physical touch, handshakes, hugs, etc. Everyone who's lived through it, I think, is going to have an absolutely renewed appreciation for all of those things that were just baked into normal life before. But after this, we're going to think, Man, oh man, I'm so glad to shake your hand. Man, I'm glad to hug you. I don't know. Does that resonate with you? Oh, of course. 100%. Like I said, you know, just the other day, our local gas utility company, our natural gas company, I had to do a service call for uh, the guy who had accidentally backed his trailer in and bumped up against his gas service and tilted the pipe coming out of the ground. So I had to come over. They'd red tagged the, the meter and I fixed the pipe, got everything tested, pressure tested to make sure that there wasn't any leaks and that everything was in good shape and that it was safe to fill with fuel again. Got it ready for him, called my local municipality and had them come down and perform a, an inspection on it and give me a green tag. Now I've got the green tag. So now I call my gas company. Their name is Atmos. I call Atmos, I say, what do you need me to do now? I've got this green tag. Can you come and turn the meter on? I said, sure. Are you going to be there? I said, well, I'm, I'm awfully busy. I'd like to get on out of here. And they told me, well, due to COVID, we don't go into the customer's house. And I says, well, what do you mean by that? And they said, well, you need to stick around or be there when the serviceman gets there to go into the customer's house and light all the appliances, and then you're to come outside and stay six feet away from our serviceman and tell him that everything is okay. And I said, so let me get this straight. You guys are not willing to take on the liability or the risk of COVID-19 for your customers, but you expect me to, and you're just fine with that, huh? And, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, we are just fine with that. And I said, you know I'm the only dude that you can call in this area that's going to jump when you say frog. And if I don't want to do this anymore and go into customers just like you, what does that do for your business? And what does that do for me? You'll be waiting two, three, four weeks for a plumber, one of these one man show guys running around here to come and help you. You're going to do that to your customer over COVID-19. And she didn't want to talk about that too much. You know what I mean? She just wanted to collect as much as she could. I'm not scared. I put my little face mask on. I go into the customer's disgusting home. I <laughs> light the pilots. I shake his hand if I if he sticks it out. Because plumbers, you're not as scared of viruses and bacterias and germs as much as <laughs> the general public. We deal with stuff that's far worse than COVID-19. <laughs> so we're not as scared of it. But for them to just think that I'm going to be willing to go in there and because they're not, and that that's just going to ha- be how yeah, it is. Yeah, it's, a, it's gonna, an ugly assumption on their part, yeah. Here's a company out of Houston, Texas, multi-billion dollar company, and their liability and their risk with COVID-19 is so great that they can't go into these homes, yet they expect small business America to face it and saddle up that liability, and it's just kind of funny, the irony in it. But 
to be honest with you, I'm glad that our company is small and that I can make the decision to keep working and do the jobs I do. I, like I said, I wear my face mask into the house. I, I put gloves on if I have to. If I'm dealing with something dirty anyway, I always wear those little rubber surgeon gloves anyway when I'm dealing with dirty pipes yeah. or dirt floors or anything like that. I don't want my hands on it anyway. So I wear that stuff <laughs> anyway. And being in rural Colorado, I was a natural social distancer anyway. The more wide out. <laughs> open that I can get out by Moab or out by Durango or out by Telluride, the better I'm feeling. So, but it's like you said, it's made everybody very nervous. It's stressful because we don't know what the future holds. This election's got everybody uptight. There's a lot going on right now to say the least. Yeah. I did a project in my late twenties. Basically it was a say hello to people kind of project where I was just meeting people on the street, saying hi and, and trying to just really like seeing what the possibilities were for quick connections with people in the community. And it was awesome. I would just say hello to people and then we'd, we'd chat for a little bit. And I, I'm just a huge subscriber in the ability of two people to get together and talk. I just, it's so simple, but it's really powerful. And I think well, what it does is the talking silences the ambient chatter that is in our heads and culture all the time. Mm-hmm. What you're talking about, right, with the with all the buzz about the presidential election, about COVID, and don't get me wrong, I mean, consequential things are at stake with both of those issues, but nevertheless, I think when two people talk, you get to know each other, right? You get to see oh, that we're yeah. human beings. You get to see that all of the things that we have in common, and again, like I don't want to sound like such a Pollyanna, but I still think it's all we have. I think communication is really our only tool, and we have to use it. Oh, it's huge. Like I said, one of the most powerful memories of doing service work were these two old ladies sitting at a table having a conversation. One was probably in her 60s and the other was in her 80s. And you could tell the younger one came and checked up on her friend and would take care of her. And they were talking and she says, why don't you get another dog? And the older woman says, well, I don't want to die and leave the dog, Uh you know, with somebody. And that conversation was so powerful. I can't remember the exact words verbatim, but I mean, it was just that human connection and seeing that moment of vulnerability as human beings was it. Yeah. 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 It still shakes me, but I feel that. Don't worry about that. She says, you need a friend. You need somebody to take care of. That'll give you a reason to get up in the morning. That'll give you a reason to do something and get out and walk. And I was like, yes, ma'am. And I agreed with her. I said, please do. I didn't go any further, but I thought, you know, if she passes away, somebody will get her dog and take care of it. And yeah. she'll have a friend. You know, it makes me think, I forget where I heard this, but I read an article somewhere. It was talking about solving emotional problems or trying to help solve emotional problems for friends, family members, coworkers. And, and it was talking about how if someone comes to you with an issue related to a personal matter or a concern or an anxiety, you could usually respond with one of two things, or I guess both, empathy or a solution. And it sounds like in that story, the younger friend did both. By being there, there's empathy, but then also talking through it. And listen, the priority is you having a friend right now. Don't worry, we'll take care of the dog. And it strikes me in talking to you, Sam, now that thinking about the noise that infiltrates our culture and surrounds us and incessant dialogue around federal political issues that, as I said, are important, but in other ways are 
at a pretty far remove from the daily circumstances of life on a day-to-day level. And we just get so consumed with negativity and hateful speech. We don't really talk so much about empathy and problem solving. And that's precisely what we could do at a more grounded community level. Um, Oh, yeah. Problem solving is such an important skill. It helps in the trades. It helps in social aspects. It's important. And being able to compromise. If you can't compromise, if you can't make a deal, if you can't use your brain to figure out a middle ground where you're going to be able to make a deal, the level of stubbornness, the level of control issue there, it doesn't attract me much. I don't know how to deal with people like that as well as I do with people who are flexible and are, are, are able to come up with a compromise or come up with some kind of a solution to a problem. That's one another thing that really frustrated me about COVID-19 response was what I love about Americans is we figure things out. We're great at mm. problem solving. And when the health department put a hard line in the ground and said, these businesses are closed right now and we're just not going to open them and these ones can stay open, they should have said, okay, well, all of these businesses that need to close need to close for that two-week period. But during that two-week period, here are some of the things that we need from a business to be safe at this time and let American ingenuity come up with solutions for their own business, submit a plan to the health department and be able to make a living and to open and keep their business open. It yeah, was that's so a really interesting idea. They didn't, they didn't tap into the American ingenuity. They just said, Oh, this is what we're going to do. We don't want to hear anything about it. You can't sue us. <laughs> we're going to win. Right. And, It was a huge ball that states, not federal level. This isn't federal level responses that we're talking about here. This is all at the state and local level responses here. When they're blaming people at the federal level, there's only so much the federal level could have done. There's not a one cutter solution to America. There's so many different demographics and different areas that make up America. So what works for you guys there? may not work for me where I have more cows around me than I do people, in my opinion, because I live in the four corners. I have four states that affect me, Utah, Arizona, New Mexico, and Colorado. Utah and I, we can go back and forth. We can do business. We can, I can go over there and play golf, eat some food, go jeeping, and have a good time. But if I want to go to New Mexico right now, it's pretty weird. Like I don't know. I'm pretty sure I can go to Farmington. But they're asking people from high-risk states to quarantine for 14 days if they want to go to New Mexico. If I want yeah. to go fishing in Mexico at a regular lake, just a, a reservoir that's filled with my water and my tax dollars and sportsman dollars paid for, I can't go there. I just felt like a lot of the response was optics, and that bothers me. Yeah. I don't like yeah. fake. You know what I mean? I right. want yeah. stuff that's real solutions. I don't like sugarcoating it. Don't sugarcoat it for me. I don't like to do things for the optics. I want it to be real solutions. Like, why does my bunker still not have a rake? I don't know. It just doesn't make sense to me. Some of the things do, like wearing a mask in a heavy populated place where everybody's running around and doing stuff that makes sense to me. But some of the stuff... It doesn't. Even on that point, too, I remember, you remember early on, they said not to wear a mask, and then they reversed it, and they said to wear a mask. And I remember 
when they said not to. I remember talking to my mother and saying, Mom, they're 100% going to reverse this. It's common sense. They're just saying not to because they don't want to scare people. But what's better, being safe about proper protocol or avoiding getting scared? I mean, come on, we can take it. I totally agree with you. Don't sugarcoat it. Exactly. The thing, like I said, going back to the ingenuity of Americans and tapping into it, I feel like they haven't asked us enough. One of the problems was, is I would have an opinion about COVID-19 really early and they, and people would be like, well, you're a plumber, you're not a biologist, you know, why do you even have an opinion on this subject? Assuming that I'm dumb or that I can't have some deduction skills and kind of look at the situation and be like, it smells fishy. I don't like the feeling in my gut. So the second that I have that feeling, I start asking questions. That's my natural response is why, what, how, when? Where? Because I want to know. And the more that we started to hear about COVID, the more questions I started asking. I asked a lot and it frustrated people. And I wondered why. Why? I'm not saying anything. I'm asking because my mind is asking these questions. I'm not trying to offend somebody. I just want to know. Yeah, yeah. So, Sam, I wanted to ask you about plumbing running in your family. You said you're a fourth-generation plumber. So your great-grandfather was a plumber, and your grandfather, and your father, and you. Yep. That's and pretty, that's pretty oh. cool. A brother, too. Yep. So do you know the story of your great-grandfather? How did the plumbing lineage get started with him? You know, he lived in San Diego, and... I'm not quite sure what the story is on how he did get into plumbing. I think it was he was working construction and they needed help and he just took the job was what I understand. And he was a hardworking guy. He really was. And he built himself a business there in San Diego. And my grandfather took that over from him. My dad moved to Colorado after getting out of college and started his own company. So the two companies that we've had in the family aren't the same company, but it's four generations of plumbers. And that doesn't happen very often in our society anymore where people follow in their father's footsteps. And I did anything I could. I tried like hell to not follow (laughs) At at the same time, I was not succeeding in school. So I was just actually doing the exact opposite. I was putting myself closer and closer to following right behind him. And when I got out of school, I realized that uh, chasing the pipeline and doing oil and gas wasn't really my style. I didn't like being away from home. The hours were crazy. The pay was good. But I mean... We're talking, some of these guys are just wild. I mean, I would be on cruise that these guys were, you wouldn't know if you was going to end up dead, you'd party so hard. And even if you didn't party, you were trying to sleep in these trailer houses at these <laughs> wells with guys that were partying like that. And you're like, what am I going to do? You know? Yeah. <laughs> so I quickly got to the point where I was like, I like construction. I like working for my father. He's mellow. He's a good guy. He's easy to work for. So it was a no brainer for me. Like I said, I had a young child 
at 24, that's when I really buckled down and took the trade serious. I had been doing it since I was in high school, like I said, and even earlier than that, but really took the learning side of it and tried to get serious about getting myself licensed and able to do these jobs on my own. And then years and years and years of working towards the trade has left me well-respected in the area for the quality of work that I do. So and it's nice to have that. You described your dad last week when we spoke as being both driven and passionate, but also empathetic and pro-employee, which I thought was a great description. Tell me more about his philosophy as the head of a small business. Well, it's always pay your bills first. And... You keep your suppliers paid and you keep your employees paid and you keep your overhead kept up with, and then you pay yourself, you'll make it. You start taking more than what you get or you don't pay your bills right away, you'll be done really fast. Mm -hmm. And then the next thing is, what can I do to make you happy? What can I get some money out of you if they're being really terrible about paying you? Figuring out a, a way to settle and getting some money out of them and keeping them happy so they're not bad-mouthing you around town. Because like I said, word of mouth is so important that trying to make somebody happy if you have to eat a little bit of that money is better than having them go around and bad-mouthing you. So, you know, I saw him make a lot of tough decisions. And then there's some times where you just have to say, hey, you know, this isn't working out and you have to write it all the way off. But he was always really good at making decisions. Decision making is what separates us as human beings. I mean, mm. people who are really good at decision making are successful. People mm. who are not good decision makers, they have terrible lives. And you can see it. It's easy to tell. Anybody that knows a good group of people can see the difference between sure. decision making. Yeah. And bad decision-making. Yeah, yeah. That's the biggest thing that I want to take away into this business, into the future, is being able to make good decisions. And I have the problem, going back to the self-awareness, I make a lot of great decisions, and then I make one really bad one. And then I make a lot of great decisions, and then I make a really <laughs> bad one. So what I'm going to try to avoid is that really bad one, as far as the business is concerned, by consulting with my team that I trust and respect their opinion. I've got five master plumbers in my shop. So the level of talent there and the level of competency there is amazing for the area that we live in. And yeah. I'm going to rely on them and, and make them feel like they're a bigger part of the company by depending on them to help me make big decisions that I'm nervous about or ones that I want to have an, an extra opinion on. So I'm excited about that part of the job. I can't wait to make some big decisions because, like I said, decision-making is fascinating to me. I want to see how I react. I want to see what I do. And I want to see what I am capable of. Yeah, tap into that hive mind of your fellow master plumbers, which that is something I also wanted to ask you about. I guess the master plumbing test is a component of a larger question I wanted to ask you, which is it seems like there's so many upsides to your line of work. The money can be good. The diversity of tasks is interesting and keeps you stimulated. As you said, you meet people. It's social. Obviously, there's an asterisk there with COVID-19 and things being a little different, but historically speaking, that holds. Nevertheless, we have this fairly negative stereotype, or if it's not negative, it's at least not positive, right? And we talked about this a little bit where Mario is the first thing that comes to mind, and then just some image of a guy with a butt crack, right, hanging out. 
So what I find fascinating, Sam, too, is how this line of work can be a path toward a very fulfilling life. And I think sometimes people get hung up on image over substance. And there are some people in the world probably who maybe were similar to you, maybe for whatever reasons, didn't want to be on like a highly academic track, but were clearly smart and curious and good problem solvers and skilled. But maybe they think, oh God, plumber, I'm not going to do that. So my question for you is working with people who are in this line of work and are smart, versatile individuals. I mean, what, what are some of your insights about the power of that stereotype and when it precludes more people from getting into that line of work? Well, the stereotypes aren't going to go anywhere. They just don't. People get offended by them sometimes, but I think that that's just an inability to be self-accepting and mm. being confident in yourself. If a stereotype is hurting your feelings, you know what I mean? You probably need to get some help with your confidence. <laughs> and once you build on that and work on that, then you're able to see them for what they are. Like I said, when we talked earlier, those preconceptions they have their place. It's just, are you mature enough to handle them for what they really are? Being a plumber, you know, obviously Mario and, and butt crack come up and Mario is still my favorite video game. You know what I mean? And Mario Kart, because it's a great game. And if you're a little bit overweight and your pants aren't quite fitting, you know, when you bend <laughs> over to do that work, your butt crack will show. <laughs> it just kind of goes with the territory, but there's so much that you can get from the trade. Like I said, the money is good. The ability to get into different parts of the trade are huge. People who come out of college should be looking to get into the trades. Maybe not into the trades as far as the way that I'm into the trades, but the level of engineering that's going on right now, the level of technology that's going on through the trades, marketing, sales. There's huge potential for anybody who's interested and getting out there and making a difference in their community as far as the building trades are concerned and the future of infrastructure in America. We need to update, in my opinion. I feel like we've kind of bogged out as far as our technology is concerned. It's not going where we thought technology in the future was going to go. You know what I mean? I want to see what the next thing in infrastructure is and how we're going to deal with wastewater and trash. And if those kinds of things are interesting to you and you ask questions like that and you want to know what's going to be next, the trades are for you. Just being self-aware. Not everybody's built to be a plumber and being self-aware of your skills and your strengths and what you can do is important. Right. Uh, I really I love that message because what it says, among other things, is that if you're a young person in the U.S., you don't have to go to Princeton and study chemistry in order to become someone who can innovate and experiment. There are all kinds of different avenues toward innovation and contributing toward improvements in infrastructure. And going back to the beginning of our conversation, that job that you described earlier today, to me, had a lot of technical dimensions to it. And I'm not a particularly technical guy in that department. But that is to say that there's a lot of multifaceted decision-making. I feel like this word keeps coming up in our conversation. But also cross-pollinating ideas. You have to know about electricity, and I'm sure you need to know about carpentry. You obviously have to know about metal, and there is chemistry involved. And that's just off the top of my head. I'm sure you could say a lot more about it than I can. Oh, yeah. 
for sure. That's a great point because I do have to know a lot about the other trades. Being a plumber, I compared to a drywaller. I have to know more about other trades than he does. For the builder, he has to know a lot about electrical, plumbing, all the other trades. If he wants to be a good general contractor, he's got to know a lot about those trades to make sure that he's savvy with everything so that he doesn't make mistakes. But after the contractor, the plumber, he's responsible of knowing other people's codes and knowing what's okay to do and not okay for other trades so that you don't mess them up. You don't want to cause somebody else grief and do something damage, property damage, by not knowing their codes. So you have to know a lot about their stuff. And being that we do plumbing and heat, I've got to do diagnosis on furnaces, boiler systems. I wire all my own boiler systems. So there's so much to learn. And that's what's fun. Anything that you can get into that there's constant learning and a constant ability to grow and build and learn more, you can't beat that. I mean, it's not for everybody. Like I said, I'm not going to convince everybody to just drop what they're doing, you know, and, and come and join in the trades and be an electrician or a plumber or a builder or whatever. But guys like me that are smart do want to affect their community in a positive way. There's a great opportunity out there. Come to my shop. Turn in an application. We'll kick the tires on you. If you're smart, <laughs> if you got talent, if you got something to bring to the table, you're going to get a job. If you keep poking at it, you're going to get a job unless you're just a complete dummy. And even then, there's got to be something for a guy to do. There's sure. always something. So the stereotype about having to go to college, college isn't for everybody. Like I said, by the time I got out of high school, I'd already made $60,000 in my life. I had a nice car and a truck. I had it going on. I had my own money. I had my own place. And a lot of my friends were in college and enjoying that lifestyle. And there's part of me that would have loved to have gone and done that and had that experience and been able to run around with a bunch of college girls and whatnot. That would have been (laughs) fun, but it just didn't happen for me. So I never looked back. It never hit me with that much regret where I was like, boy, I really messed up. I don't know the government $100,000 for that education. You know what I mean? I never thought that. I was like, I'm making money right now and making good money. So like I said, I've got tons of friends that went to school. I make more money. Like I said, it's not for everybody, but at the same time, the trades fit a a wide variety of different personalities and strengths because there's so many different angles to get into the business. Yeah, totally. Sam, what does the master plumber test entail? Well, it used to be that you do a practical and a written. But now, with computers the way it is, you don't do a written, obviously. You do it on a computer, and there's no practical test anymore. So it's just a five-hour marathon of answering very difficult questions. Some people you know, would probably say that it was easy, but I don't deal with all of the different aspects of plumbing. I don't do a whole lot of skyscrapers here. It's right. not... eight-story building is not something that I run into very often. So when they ask me questions that concern multi-level drainage and venting, I had to do some studying about that and learn how to use the code book to take the test. But they give you the code book. 
so if you were really good at being able to find things in a book <laughs> and reading, you could probably pass that test, but it would take a, a high, high level of common sense. And like I said, being able to find things and it would be very difficult. But like I said, it took five hours. Once I was done, I clicked on the link and it said that I had passed and I really didn't even go over how I did. I was just so excited that I passed be, yeah. <laughs> and done with the test that I just clicked off and went, went out, got my paperwork. I walked down to the river, which was just right there, the La Plata or the uh, Animus River there in Durango. And it was in the middle of summer. And I had shorts on, and I just walked out and sat on this rock out in the middle of the river and just let that cool water. <laughs> oh, what a great my, moment. That's nice. I, yeah. But once I got it, I knew that I could take over this business from my father and that it was time to do it. And it was just a matter of waiting for him to want to retire. And he's such a hands-on guy. It's been tough to get him out the door, but <laughs> he agreed to, to do it in, in January. And now that he has agreed to it, something I've been excited for and waiting for my whole life is now coming up. I can't help but be nervous and wonder what's going to happen. But yeah, yeah. it's not like he's going to go away and I ain't going to be able to call him and get some consultant work from him and, and help from him. But an end of a big error for a lot of my friends like I said, all the employees, they just love him. So there's a lot of nerves. And to have all of this stuff going on with COVID and the election and people just losing it, it's been interesting. But we're such a good team and there's so much talent there that we're doing a really good job right now. I'm glad to hear that. And it's good to be able to catch you at this moment in October 2020 when you're very much at a life transition moment where you're going to you're going to take over this business in a couple months. So I, I feel your energy and your nerves and, and also, you know, your knowledge and compassion. It's all coming through. So I'm glad we were able to do this. I have one more question. What would you say is one thing or some things that master plumbers know that the rest of us don't? Well, I guess just the the level of uh, time and effort that goes into becoming even just a, a journeyman plumber. Mm. And we're never going to get a whole lot of respect as far as careers go, but it would be nice that if people would take the time to think about how important plumbing is to their day-to-day -day life and how sure. it's changed society. It's allowed us to build and grow and multiply it is the first line of defense as far as the health of the community COVID-19 would be an absolute disaster without good plumbing and a way to clean yourself and a way to dispose of your waste and it's something that people need to take seriously when they think about what they're dealing with when you're talking to a plumber and you go to well you're just a plumber that's not always the case some of us are dumb and don't know what we're doing and bad at our job but there's a lot of us that are very sharp very hardworking, and we're dedicated to our trade and learning it and being good at it and our customers reap those benefits that's probably about it that's great it's been super fun i really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day to talk about your life and your world i learned a lot i think listeners will enjoy any closing thoughts to sign off on I really appreciate you reaching out to me because there's so many kids that don't know what to do. And if this helps one kid, one teenager, one high schooler get into a meaningful career that changes his life and allows him to feed his family, 
That'd be huge. Yeah. Sam, I hope you have a great weekend. And once we could travel again, if I'm ever out west in your neck of the woods, I would love to connect for a drink. Yeah, I do Instagram. I take pictures of my area. So if you're interested in checking out where I live and what I do, my uh, username is San Juan Sam. And I've got a lot of great photos of the Southwest. So if you're interested in doing any kind of traveling here, or if you're interested in visiting Colorado, Utah, Arizona, New Mexico, reach out to me. I'd be more than happy to point you in the right direction, get you on the trail. Get you on awesome. A, Very cool. On a lake to go fish or a paddleboard or whatever. I'll check that out. Thank you. Yes, sir. Thanks. All right, Sam. Hope you have a good weekend. Good talking to you. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye.